There's one thing about it, Doctor. We're certainly different from when we started out with you. That's funny. Grandfather and I were talking about that before you came in. How you both changed. Oh, we've all changed. Have I? Yes. Yes, it all started out as a mild curiosity in the junkyard. Now it's turned out to be quite a... Quite a great spirit of adventure, don't you think? Yes. Well, we've had some pretty rough times, and even that doesn't stop us. Oh, it's a wonderful thing, this ship of yours, Doctor. Taking us back to prehistoric times, the Daleks. Marco Polo, Marinus, and the Aztecs. Welcome to Time Streams. I'm Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And this time we have something a little bit different because we're going to talk about all of Doctor Who Season 1. And Juliet, you know, we have something else different today. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I still <laughs> We have guests this time. Oh my gosh, it's going to be terrifying. <laughs> There are people going to be listening to me talk about ball fashion and commenting at the same time. <laughs> oh dear, ball fashion. I had sort of blocked that from my head. I can't. It's it's forever seared into my brain. Are you going to talk about Captain No Pants too? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> because he ran around for how many episodes with no pants on? Oh my gosh. Five, I think. Oh god. <laughs> She's talking about Altos, by the way. So okay, yeah. Wondering. <laughs> she referred to him as Captain No Pants. I totally agree with her about that. <laughs> a fitting name. It, it was very risque. <laughs> like, you could see things that you didn't want to see in that costume. But anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so the voices you just heard are our friends Eric and Miranda. So let's start off with introducing Eric. Eric is somebody that I met. I think he's the first Doctor Who fan, or at least hardcore fan, I should say, that I actually met face-to-face -face when we were both going to the University of South Carolina. So, Eric, welcome to the Time Streams. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Well, first of all, I didn't know that you were... That I was your first, like, real live Doctor Who fan that you met. Same, same for you, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> Man, the revelations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How have we known each other all these years and not known that? Ooh. Second of all, hardcore may not be the right expression given what we just said about Altos, but we'll come back to that. I think. Okay. <laughs> I am a historian and author, and I farm for a living too. And in fact, only about two hours ago, I was out in the field of soybeans. Is soybeans the main crop, or do you farm other things, I assume? I farm other things, but right now it's soybean season. Cool. So, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of soybeans. Wow. It's not as, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. No, it's yeah. okay. I lived on a farm for three years. I, I totally get it. <laughs> yeah. Eric, just think you got a PhD for this. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly a, a, a different career than I <laughs> thought I was going to have. Right. All right. Well, yeah, very. it's very good to have you on the show, Eric. Thanks. Glad to be here. Hey, no problem. 
So our other awesome guest is someone I know from the 42 cast is Miranda. So Miranda, how are you? I'm doing great. Excited to talk about my favorite era of Doctor Who. I'm just a general theater person, stage manager, writer, actor, director, producer, whatever. <laughs> On hiatus, so doing doing crafts and, and watching Doctor Who. <laughs> Ooh, what kind of crafts lately? Jewelry making, mostly. Very nice. Very cool. But I will say, though, that uh, the thing that I've seen her do is cosplay, and her cosplay is always very good. That's awesome. Yay, fellow cosplayers. Yep. And it was getting into Classic Who that kind of really sent me down the rabbit hole. No, okay. (laughs) That's something I did not know. Yeah. Yeah, because I think the first thing I remember seeing you do was your Victoria yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the first con I, I like, I, I really cosplayed at was, um, was Chicago TARDIS. And mm. so that was like, you know, and I only went because, you know, of, of I started watching Classic Who and I wanted to, you know, meet other Classic Who fans and the, you know, the companions and stuff who were, who were there doing. So that's kind of what started my, my cosplay <laughs> obsession. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, no, that's cool. Because yeah, for, for my wife, who also does cosplay, it was like she got in through anime. And then just because I was so into Doctor Who, we started going to cons and she started doing the stuff. So yeah, no, no, that's very cool, though, that uh, the who is what got you into cosplay. So since we're all here now, let's talk about classic who. So we're just talking about season one. Juliet is watching in order. She knows nothing other than she's seen the Eccleston and Tennant eras of New Who. She hasn't even watched beyond that. I've seen a little bit of Matt Smith. Up oh, until... I thought you hadn't seen any Matt Smith. I, I've, I made it through because I really liked Amy and Rory, but then we got to Cla- Clara. Clara, I can't stand her, and I had to stop watching for a while. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I misunderstood. <laughs> Trust me, a, a bad companion can make me drag my feet. You should have seen how long it took me to get through Martha. No, <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. But let's 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 not talk about yeah, that. Beyond, yeah. in, in Classic Who, I've seen nothing beyond season one. Right. So yeah. So let's make sure, like, and just limit like the conversation to just season one. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is we've got this show. We've got you know Doctor Who. That was a show that even though Verity Lambert was sort of wooed in to be the producer with a promise that this show is going to run for a year. We know now from all the memos and things that were released that the show, at one point, they were saying, well, we'll only really guarantee 13 episodes, which is why The Edge of Destruction uh, was commissioned. But it's a show that's continued on, obviously, beyond that. So what do you think it was about this initial season of Doctor Who that propelled it forward? Like, what is the thing that you think that is the most central to making this a show that took off? Let's start with you on this one, Eric. Well, um, it, funnily enough, I, by a complete coincidence, I have been rewatching season one. Mm-hmm. So I, it's very fresh in my mind. And I, I think the thing that I find so alluring about it is it's so weird. It's so mm. uh, shockingly unusual compared to anything around it. And, and unsettlingly so. Um, especially the first four episodes plus the first one or two episodes of the Daleks. In fact, episode one of that story, The Dead Planet, I think is pound for pound the most unsettling, disturbing episode in the entire history of the series. This is a very interesting point that you're making, because you think about, you know, a lot of times people compare Doctor Who to 
Star Trek because they were they're both long running series that started in the sixties and whatever. But if we want to really get a little more, you know, uh, contemporary, like you know, Lost in Space started I think a couple years before Star Trek did, and so you compare Doctor Who to something like Lost in Space, and I don't know if there's anything else that's even in the same stratosphere as Doctor Who, and like it's completely different. I had wondered about how different it was from other series at the time. Yeah, the only thing I could compare it to that's sort of vaguely in the same genre would be something like the early Avengers episodes or Secret Agent, uh, Danger Man. But, you know, those are sort of vaguely in the same fantasy genre type thing. And they're just, you know, they're, they're so drab. And, I mean, I love Danger Man, but it's so drab compared to this cheap <laughs> BBC mm-hmm. kids show, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I think the thing about Doctor Who that was like really different than a lot of the other sci-fi series is just its its maturity and its intelligence. I mean, it was absolutely, mm. there was stuff that, you know, nothing a child couldn't watch, but it was, it was never dumbed down at all. It was very, it was, it was, it was pretty cerebral for, you know, a show of that time. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, and that's the really interesting thing. You talk about the internal politics at the BBC and you look at the fact that the children's department people were angry that they were making a children's show, but in the serials department, that they weren't giving them their due. But I think that that would have been a completely different show if it was the kind of show that that people produced, you know, that were used to producing things for children, you know, because I think it would have inevitably been dumbed down quite a bit because a lot of people have notions about what children can accept. And actually, that's one of the very best things, I think, that, that Verity Lambert brought to it is just a realization that even though she wasn't a person, like she, she admits in a lot of interviews and things that she wasn't someone who was really into kids or anything, that she understood that kids don't want to be talked down to. Mm. Kids mm. want to have something that's aimed high, right? You know, th- th- their intelligence is in question. And funny enough, I mean, I think we almost lucked out with Doctor Who that most of the producers have felt that way, even though it was ostensibly a kid's show through a good portion of the 70s. I think that you've hit on a good point, though, Miranda, is the fact that it was, it didn't talk down to kids. It was, but even though it was supposed to be a kid's show, but it could appeal. I think maybe parents or adults happen to maybe be watching it with their kids or older mm-hmm. siblings or watching it with their younger siblings, maybe. And people just got caught on to it because... It's good for all ages. I mean, I'm sitting here at the age of 40 and digging every moment of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's so intelligent. And, and I mean, with the exception of maybe the Keys of Marinus, which is a little bit of a step down. Uh, it's, I, I was really shocked this time around, uh, and I think I'm always shocked every time I go through that first season, at how intelligent even the censor rights is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's maybe not quite on the same level as the rest of the series, too, but it's still smarter than the Keys of Marinus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the Sensorite's failings, I don't think, are in how, like, high concept it's going. I think its failings happen more in the realm of it's not very pacey and it's kind of... It's kind of slow, right? I mean, I don't think, I don't think that, that it's high concept and, and that it's no, intelligent and it, is the problem. It's a little naive, whereas the Keys mm. of Marinus is talking down just a little bit, I think. Um, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, the paciness is a problem, too. <laughs> <laughs> and then I wonder how much having 
strong women. To me, Barbara especially feels like a very strong female role in the series. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure I have other shows really to compare it to. I mean, I, I think I vaguely remember Lost in Space. I remember the original Star Trek, of course, more and Uhura and Nurse Chapel while they're there. And I am so glad that Uhura is a constant presence. She is nowhere near as prominent and as, and as important as Barbara and Susan are. And Mm -hmm. even our side characters. um, Oh, what was her name from Marco Polo? Pink Joe. Thank you. And you know, my favorite Dione. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, these women are fantastic. And I have to imagine how progressive was that for a show at that time? Okay, all right. I have to ask you, Juliet. Juliet, have you sent the fan letter to to Virginia Weatherell yet? I'm planning to write it because I start PTO on Friday and I have like a week of PTO. I'm okay. writing it and sending it over Thanksgiving holiday. She right, is my awesome. favorite. <laughs> wow. She's like a, kind of a weak point of that serial for me. So No. no I'm Dione sorry, Man. Juliet. <laughs> have you seen her expression? That woman could lead the Thals. Had the Thals put her in charge? Well, oh, no. now that is true. They never and- would have fallen to the Daleks. <laughs> It is true. She is also already wearing her little crown, too. So, you know. Yeah, that's how to wear it goes to her. <laughs> the only equivalent character for Barbara, and let's just say right now, Barbara is the towering queen of all companions in the entire series. Oh, no. yes. Definitely. And if Barbara appeared right now, I would run off with her into time and space. <laughs> There's only a couple other figures in science fiction I would do that for. One of them is Catherine Hicks from Star Trek IV. I'll go, I'll oh, go yeah. study space whales with her anytime she wants. <laughs> but anyway. Um, I'm sorry, um, Eric. <laughs> you put me in stitches here. All right, but anyway. <laughs> well, I don't even remember what I was saying. I got so... Barbara, towering of the best of the companions. Oh, yes, yes. That. Yes, thank you. Um, the only equivalent character I can think of who is like Barbara is actually Mrs. Gale from the early Avengers who is uh, a very similar kind of ethical character. Whereas, say, Diana Riggs' character later on becomes more of a a comic book character. Mrs. Gale is very interested in the ethics of what Steed's doing. And honestly, she's the only character that I can think of that's like Barbara. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. Dione's my homegirl, but Barbara, I I am constantly in her corner and screaming why everybody else doesn't listen to her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Barbara is also the more like because the doctor starts out as being a questionable figure, you know, this man of mystery who can be very angry and, and short, you know, quick to his temper. Barbara ends up become, being the moral center of the show, which will never happen again with a companion. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are no companions that are her equal. Yeah. And the thing that makes the first season so unique, too, is that. This was before the Doctor was the lead of the show. I mean, in the Mm -hmm. beginning, the characters that we first meet and we first identify with and whose kind of point of view the show takes is Ian and Barbara. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's interesting to watch the Doctor learn from them and he kind of learns how to be good and be a hero like from them. And that's kind of like a really magical, wonderful thing to, to see happen. Yeah. I mean, and I guess kind of piggybacking off of Juliet's comment about Barbara and is that I think for me, the thing that sort of makes Doctor Who so great is just how well 
they thought out that initial cast mm. that that mix mm-hmm. of characters and how well they were cast to play those roles was so perfect mm-hmm. so you've got people that you really want to watch have these adventures and they're very interesting in how they play off of each other i mean it can be done bad but in what we're talking about in season one the even when they're arguing with, with each other, even when they're fighting with each other, you are interested in what's going on. You're engaged with the story. You want to f- see how it all turns out for these people. And even Hartnell, who comes off like initially very prickly, right? He's, he's not someone that's you know very, very lovable at first. He, he keeps that, that twinkle, you know, he keeps that sort of like mm-hmm. impish quality that hints at something more, deeper layers, all that kind of stuff to the character. And that, of course, you know, broadens out as the season progresses, but it lays all of that out for you even in the beginning. So do you think that that's why it got more than its initial episodes Nathan I think it's where we're going is that like why it was amazing but oh, right yeah, yeah 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 so that's that's kind of like what I'm saying is I mean I think the cast have to be credited quite a bit with that and about like, you know pulling that off engaging audiences I mean so long as we're talking about the doctor who has his twinkle not in the unaired pilot who was some sort of sadistic <laughs> bastard <laughs> yeah I had Juliet watch both versions of the pilot just so she could see the difference oh yeah no the doctor was a complete jerk and really mean and ian has a pen light and i don't understand that <laughs> yeah she she had a lot of problems with the with the junkyard scene in, in the unaired pilot where Pete, <laughs> ian has this tiny tiny little light that you can't see anything from and they gave him a real flashlight the aired by which, which is a detail i never even noticed because it was you know but but you know juliet's good about picking out those little things so I mean Juliet, were you but you were you were listing sort of Barbara and and sort of the the treatment of women, right? Like that was your thing that you wanted to say was well, the I wondered if maybe that had something to do with why it caught on so much, in addition to it being speaking to more than just kids and adults. Maybe it was just the unique the strangeness of the show itself. Maybe it was the uniqueness of having some strong female characters that took the lead and weren't always damsels in distress. Yeah, and I think we have to lay a lot of that at the door of Verity Lambert because she was a young woman in her 20s who was given control of a television show, which was unheard of at the BBC at that time. And I don't know how prevalent it was in other places, but at that time period, I'm sure that that was very rare anyway. But Sidney Newman, who came up with the concept for Doctor Who, he wanted someone who would be someone who would fight for, you know, telling the best stories and everything like that. And that's who he picked. And I think that we can lay a lot of that as far as the gender equality, the strong female characters at the door of Verity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and David Whitaker too, you know, he's the unspoken Mm -hmm. great, uh, script editor of the series, isn't he? Um, Mm -hmm. really never talk about David Whitaker enough. And his influence, you know, casts a long shadow right up to the Hurtwee era. But he's he's so good at characterization and creating intelligent people. And, uh, you know, sometimes you feel him working against the inane scripting habits of somebody like Terry Nation. <laughs> I mean, you can feel the tension between whatever crap Nation sent him and then David Whitaker trying to fix it enough to put it on screen. 
I mean, I hate to go after Nation, but, you know. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, he's someone, I mean, the thing is, you watch the first Dalek story, and there's a lot to like about that, but yeah, we're never sure exactly what David Whitaker did to it. We know from later stuff that Nation was kind of a hack, just because of the fact that he was constantly turning in the same story, but just looking at season one, I mean, the Daleks is, is actually very strong, and then, yeah, Keys of Marinus is an adventure serial, but for a kid's show, I'm not sure that that's a wrong choice. Well, it's, I don't, I don't think its format is the problem with the Keys of Marinus. And I'm a big defender of the Keys of Marinus. You remember many years ago, I made Brain of Morphoton Meatloaf for you. That's do you remember right. that? Yes, I do but, remember that. And I wish you I, could everyone, see my facial expression right now. <laughs> <laughs> everyone should have Brain of Morphoton on a plinth in their living room. But the problem, I think, with the Keys of Marinus as a story is not its format, but the fact that it's just not a very intelligent version of that format. Mm. And it also cuts corners here and there that I think undermine it. So there's some sort of logical problems with it here and okay, there. Okay, but to, to be fair, it was commissioned kind of as a last-minute thing, and they kind of had to rush it into production. So Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm not going to be too cruel to it. Um, yeah. But, but um, you know, yeah. it's not a great example of what it's trying to do. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't want to, I want I do want to talk about David Whitaker, but I do want to give uh, a little bit more time to Verity because one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about as part of this is there's this sort of notion that comes from people who are fans now that I think it, it, either they haven't really watched a lot of the first Doctor's era or it's been a long time since they have where there's just this sort of assumption that it was the 60s and therefore it was an incredibly sexist series. Oh, it has its moments. Well, well, to be fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because, you know, it's the mores of the time and some of the writers obviously had different viewpoints and whatnot. But overall, I thought it actually is pretty good in regards to, like, giving women, you know, not, pe not pigeonholing them, not, like, demeaning them. Giving them active roles in things. Yeah, I mean, I came in watching it after having really only watched New Who. So I was expecting it to be terrible. I was kind of bracing myself for, oh, you know. But I mean, when I actually watched it, I actually preferred it <laughs> to New Who, you know. <laughs> and then having subsequently watched the rest of Classic Who, I have to say it's, as, it's the strongest era, actually, for strong roles for women. I mean, and just, like, number of roles for women. I mean, almost every episode has at least one, you know, speaking female character, if not beyond the, the two companions, two female companions, which is already more women than you will see in any other era because, I mean, there were so many, you know, especially during, like, you know, the 70s, you know, with the fourth Doctor, there were definitely episodes where, like, Sarah Jane was literally the only female character in the mm. entire cast. And it's just, like... It was so refreshing, you know, and that they were really strong female characters who, like, didn't conform to the stereotype that I think New Who fans are always getting told about Classic Who. Oh, they just screamed and wore short skirts and need to be rescued. And it wasn't that. And I was so very pleasantly surprised. And, you know, and I think a lot of the, the bad rap that, that Classic Who gets is, yeah, definitely from people who, A, haven't seen it, and B, from people who... I think they want to defend some of the sexist things in New Who by saying, oh, well, other stuff was worse, which is like, A, not a, not a defense, and B, not, not even true. So, you know, it's, I think it, it kind of suffers from, from that, you know, the perception of it. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and, and one of the things, you know, just speaking to season one that I hear often is, oh, the doctor's treatment of Susan, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, this is the relationship of a grandfather and a granddaughter. This is not meant to be a relationship of equals. Exactly. How many grandparents teach their grand to treat their grandchildren as equals when they're not adults yet? Exactly. Anyone treat so a teenage grandchild that way. He's not talking to an adult woman who's his age. You know, it's, mm. it's yeah. So that that criticism always bothers me so much. Yeah, I mean, and you can tell in the moments between Hartnell and Barbara that that's not his attitude in general anyway. He's not, he's, exactly. he's, he has so much respect for Barbara. And that's the thing uh-huh. that comes out from, yes. the, from the show. And the fact that even though he has to work himself up to it because he hates apologizing in general, that ending scene of the edge of destruction is one of the most important moments in the series. Absolutely. And the scene in Edge of Destruction where Barbara tells the doctor off, I just, mm-hmm. I was just astonished watching it because all the time I've been watching New Who, I'm like, I wanted a companion to do that to the doctor at some point. And I'm like, here it was mm-hmm. in 1964 all this time. Like <laughs> that moment, like where that was so important and so powerful. Mm-hmm. Oh, so amazing. Yeah, I just like, wow. I was just, I mean, Barbara was my favorite companion forever from that moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, one of the nice things about particularly that first season, is it's, it's proper drama as mm-hmm. well as being fantasy or whatever it is. So there's actual proper like ethical dilemmas and the characters grind into each other and everything isn't nice, clean, cookie-cutter kind of arrangements. And I, it's so much more interesting to watch and rewatch than anything that has really been produced since Mm -hmm. i say that being a great fan of a lot of the later stuff but the first doctor era is so much more rewatchable because of that no i'll agree with that because i mean it's funny as you know i I probably first saw it when i was seven because that's just my pbs happened to cycle into the hartnell stories and it was the one time they ever would they would never run the hartnell stories ever again but i saw it and at the time as a kid I didn't have a lot of time for it. You know, I didn't think it was as interesting as the stuff because I had been watching the 70s and 80s who stuff. And going back and watching it, though, I am impressed every time with just how much they were able to pull off. You know, we talked about how highbrow it is, how intellectual it is, and also how much they were able to pull off with as low as their means were financially. Mm-hmm. So I'm always impressed with what they were able to do with this show. And how great it all is really all things considered you know what i tell people when they watch classic who is don't expect star trek don't expect even original series star trek imagine you're watching a play Mm. yeah it's it still feels like dark shadows to me yeah i I don't have the context for that (laughs) but i get what you're saying but yeah to me it's like a play and have those kinds of expectations. And if you think of it as a play, this is a really elaborate play. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's got really great sets, you yeah. know, and that's the way they filmed it. Yeah. More like a play. I mean, you know, people talk about, you know, how they used to like miss lines or, you know, you could see things going wrong. But it's like, when you consider that they filmed this basically as live, I mean, it's amazing mm-hmm. how perfect they got it when, you know, how quickly they were churning these out. I mean, just like, I mean, doing theater, like I have so much respect for like, how everyone has just everyone had to be at the top of their game to produce something of this quality live every week and it's just it's truly astonishing Mm. honestly i have no problem i've never had a problem with flubbing of lines or just you know some somebody that was obviously just stumbling over something 
because it felt real mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I always preferred that a little bit because then I'm like, oh yeah, they're like me who gets five thoughts ahead of my brain <laughs> right. and suddenly my voice can't catch up. That's always my problem when people criticize Hartnell because I mean, beyond the fact that he was sick and everything else, it's like, it makes sense in character as the doctor that he's just a sort of absent minded mm-hmm. type that he sometimes stumbles over his words or loses his train of thought. And it's like, it doesn't hurt the, the show for me. I blame all the alien plants he's smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Which he apparently only did in one episode, but I'm never going to let it go. I'm always really amazed at Hartnell himself. Given the amount of pressure he must have been under while he was starring in the show. I mean, he was never, I think, in the most fantastic health while he was on the show. Mm-hmm. And you would never know it. I mean, he's... He's a pro all the way through. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And like, I just think, gosh, this man went downhill pretty fast after he left the show, but he has to remember all those lines. It's just unbelievable. Well, yeah, I mean, for him, though, I think a large part of that is because for him, this was the peak of his career. You know, like he's in his 50s and suddenly he's handed the starring role of a show. I mean, I realized he had been in films and things and he had had a career, but this is he is the star as much as we say that ian and barbara are the point of view characters that's not it's not called the ian and barbara Mm -hmm. show so i think that you can almost tell like the joy he has at having this role and being like the title character in his performance Mm. you see like how excited he is and and how much he cares about Mm -hmm. the part oh it was all evident in the reign of terror art yeah Oh, he's having fun also because it's a slightly comedic story, and that was his that's his, that, that's his roots. He started out as a comedy actor, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think that that's a large part of that too. You can tell he's having fun with any of the joking and the running circles around people and, and proving he's smarter than they are. He, he loves that. So let's talk about David Whitaker. I know Eric had brought him up a little bit, talking about like sort of the quality of the, the stories and stuff in, in this season. And I think one of the things that was kind of telling about David Whitaker is the only story that he wrote entirely in this season is The Edge of Destruction. And as much as people say, oh, like, it doesn't make sense at the end, you know, ignore that. I still think it does. Juliet's heard my argument about this as an engineer. Uh, (laughs) It's always (laughs) this stupid thing that actually goes wrong. You think it's some elaborate problem. It's like, oh, my God. I thought you were going to say it's because engineers do make things that overcomplicated and incomprehensible. (laughs) That that can be a problem too sometimes, but (laughs) I was talking more of the fact of something's not working and then you, you you check everything and it turns out to be something stupid. Like it's not plugged in. (laughs) (laughs) So, so the fact that it's the stuck button doesn't bother me as much as it does other people, but all right, take that aside. That is one of the most intense and gripping stories Doctor Who's ever done. Definitely. And it's just four characters inside the TARDIS. I loved it. He's so good about character. He understands that these are people and it's not about the MacGuffin. You know, mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, I, I agree. The MacGuffin's a little weak, even though I don't think it's as problematic as some people do. That's not what the story's about. The story is about we need to give them a problem and we need to analyze how these people try to solve this problem and take all the baggage of the fact that these people were uprooted from their own time. The doctors already lied to them once with the Dalek stuff and sabotaging the ship. So you got these people who don't trust each other at all. 
And instead of just moving on to Marco Polo, which would which was the original plan, and then just kind of ignoring all of that, he was like, "Okay, we got these two episodes, this two episode gap we got to use. Let's make it about that. Let's make it about these people have to sort of come to grips with what's happened, and, and they have to get to a point where they don't hate each other or and they're suspicious of each other. And it's fantastic. Look, the fact that you could put just the characters inside the TARDIS for the entire length of the at the edge of destruction Mm -hmm. and that's it that was it i mean i admit i thought that was some weird twilight zone type episode (laughs) but i really got into it wait was that our episode with the beds yes yes okay yeah and susan was acting really like susan to me that was like straight out of japanese horror (laughs) half the time with her i don't she was she was beautifully acting and it was creeping me out mm-hmm. like more than the Daleks scared me they scared me all of them with how they were acting and reacting mm-hmm. and it was just like they fed off each other's paranoia but it was mm-hmm. beautiful I mean wow yeah that honestly that's the most like that I think that was probably the the scariest episode of Doctor Who to watch for the first time that of any I have ever seen because it's such a different realm. It's like the psychological terror thing because later watching Doctor Who, you know that the Doctor's the good guy. Mm. But like watching that, like I didn't know if the Doctor was the good guy. I didn't know what was going on. It was terrifying. I mean, like I jumped like in my seat when Susan with that net, with that scissors, holy bejeepers. Oh yeah. <laughs> you don't know. Is he going to throw them? It was just terrifying to watch. And it was amazing just to see the dynamics between the characters and just, you know, and that, you know, that shift and just to watch, you know, as they butt heads and then come back together as an actual unit after it's all resolved. And it's just, it's honestly one of my, one of my favorites. I mean, I just, it's just, I don't think there's ever been just an episode of just the characters in the TARDIS without any kind of outside aliens, monsters, threats, anything. And honestly, I it's probably one of the few of the of the earlier episodes that isn't ever slow. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's very fast paced. It's all meaty, good character driven stuff. And I just like, who boy, it's a tour de force. I love it. Yeah, I'm glad to hear other people talking about it because it's always one that I hear so many people like talk about how the Edge of Destruction is particularly good. So I'm always on the defensive about it. But, you know, sort of the point that I want to segue into with David Whitaker is I think that that's what he brought to the script editing too because we know a lot of these writers wrote before the show had even, you know, like John Lucarotti, you know, Terry Nation, Anthony Coburn. They had nothing to go by other than the series Bible. You know, and yeah, starting with the Aztecs on, they might have been able to see some of the early episodes when they started writing. They still didn't have a whole lot. I think that we have David Whitaker to thank for the fact that their characterization is so consistent across this entire season. And in fact, like I've mentioned, there's even like an arc for the Doctor that Mm -hmm. I doubt was planned by the specific actors. That's Whitaker, you know, adjusting the scripts to allow that to sort of happen and have that through line yeah i agree with you i think that he really had a clear idea of what he wanted the characters to be and he would have been on the ground too so that he could see how the performances were going but it's that clarity i think of of the function of each character and and what they're supposed to bring to the table the only character i think he fell down a little bit on was susan Mm -hmm. he sort of starts i say he Susan starts to develop a little bit in the sensorites, mm-hmm. but 
they never quite get a, a handle on who she's supposed to be and why she's so weird. And if someone can explain to me <laughs> why she attacks that poor bed with those scissors. <laughs> All right, so so Eric, okay, like, what did the bed do to her? I gave my theory about this in the in the Edge of Destruction episode that we did. So here's my theory, and now it couldn't have been what they planned at the time because this uses knowledge from later in the series. But my idea is this: we know Susan's telepathic. We know the TARDIS is telepathic. The TARDIS is beaming its pain, like she's feeling the TARDIS's pain, and that explains Susan's behavior in the Edge of Destruction, that she is just acting out in the pain and agony that she feels, and the suspicion that these people that are inside the ship are mucking about and, and hurting her, and that's what makes her so paranoid, too. This is my theory about the Edge of Destruction and Susan's performance. Well, actually, I will buy that, and I don't think it's necessarily reliant on future knowledge, because... I think she was always planned to be psychic. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody misunderstood psychic as psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Look, my theory on it was completely different. Have you seen the shapes of those beds? <laughs> well, I agree. <laughs> on those beds repeatedly and not go crazy. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. That is so true. Yes. I would have stabbed in those beds. That's why we called the Edge of Destruction episode Blame the Beds. <laughs> it uh, it. Well, maybe it was all one gigantic psychotic episode for everybody. <laughs> Sleep deprivation induced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying about Susan. And, and I mean, Carol Ann Ford's even mentioned it herself in interviews that she feels like she was underserved compared to the other characters. And I think that has more to do with the fact that I think, I don't think they had a good handle on how to write a teenager first off. And then second off, she's an alien on top of that. And it was kind of like, I don't know what to do. So she vacillates between being incredibly brave and being terrified of the least little thing. And you can almost see th there's, a, there's a pattern, and I brought this up to Juliet. When they're in technological situations, Susan seems way more brave than when they're in less technological situations. Oh, in the Reign of Terror, she's a gibbering ninny. But like in the Daleks and the Sensorites, like Susan seems incredibly brave at times in the Daleks, only because in the jungle she's not, but in the city, the Dalek city she is. So there might have been some thought to that with her character, and it might just be a coincidence, but that's kind of my take on Susan. Yeah, I, I, I will disagree ever so slightly with you. I think she is designed to be not your typical teenager mm. because... In that very first shot at Coal Hill School, uh, I was really struck by this the, the last time I watched it, um, you know, not too long ago. You have these sort of socializing teenagers and the girls roll their eyes and, mm -hmm. and the dude comes up behind them and, and is a jerk to them or whatever and, you know, mm -hmm. a cad to them. And then, then you have Susan who is really studious and a kind of a weird chick. And she's being communicated to us as weird chick. Mm -hmm. And then she just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Miranda, what's your take on Susan? Well, first and foremost, I love Susan. I always will. But I absolutely do agree that, yeah, I think they just kind of didn't know what to do with her. And I, I mean, like, I, I think there was potential to do so much more with her that I'm really sad that they never really harnessed, you know, never really kind of figured out how to do I don't know I think maybe because you know maybe because most of the writers were you know middle-aged men they kind of didn't you know know how to write a teenage girl as intelligent or I, I don't know I just I mean it 
but no, I mean, I think what's there is good. I mean, I think, and I think the fact that, you know, that, that she is younger and she was meant to be kind of the, the character that like children in the audience would identify with, you know, I mean, I think that's probably a lot of the reason why they wrote her as, you know, more afraid or timid or in some circumstances and stuff. I don't see, you know, any of the times that she's screaming or afraid as a terrible thing or making her a bad character. Like some people say, I mean, she's, she's meant to be young. I mean, even if she is, you know, a time Lord and, you know, however, you know, she's meant to be young in the development of whatever a time Lord is, you know, so, and, and this was before time Lords were even like thought of, we just know that, you know, there are aliens, she's the granddaughter who's, who's young and, you know, and, and the doctor's her grandfather and that, and that was the relationship that they wrote you know, of a grandfather and a teenage grandchild. And I feel like they did pretty well on, on the whole, I, you know. And Caroline Ford was just, just great. She was just so, like, elfin and otherworldly. And just, I think Susan's wonderful. And that was actually one of the main reasons I watched the first Doctor era, because they were doing some kind of retrospective on TV about Classic Who before I'd watched it. And they're like, they mentioned, and they travel with, the Doctor travels with his granddaughter. I'm like, what? The Doctor's granddaughter? We get to meet her? Oh my God, you know? So that yeah. was like, that was why I, I watched it in the first place. I was so intrigued by that. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the whole otherworldly and elfin quality. And, and Julia brought it up a little bit with her performance in Edge of Destruction. The thing is, I think Carol Ann Ford had the ability there. I mean, that what she does with what she's given is good. It was just the fact Absolutely. that the writing never served her because, yeah, I think that she's good. I mean, even in, 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 you know, I brought up Reign of Terror just because I feel like it does get a little extreme at times in the Reign of Terror. Like, oh, no, I won't get away because I have a headache. You oh, know? God. <laughs> That's the scene where I'm like, okay, we've gone a little too far. But, you know, for the most part, it's like, okay, she's contemplating being guillotined you know, in this story. So yeah, I think that being a little terrified and being kind of high strung makes a lot of sense in that circumstance. So uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's not as unbelievable as people say it is. Mm. And, and you get to configure figure the fact, I mean, people now I think look at the doctor and his companions as sort of superheroes, but the idea was supposed to be she and her grandfather just traveled. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's Ian and Barbara's fault that suddenly everywhere they went ended up being somewhere dangerous. <laughs> I imagine before that, they because I mean, the way that they describe like the places they've been before that, it always just seemed like they would lounge around somewhere for a few weeks or whatever, you know, and then move on. You know, it didn't seem like they had like these big adventures. There was that time on Quinnis in the fourth universe, though. Right. They and Esto, lost. where they lost the TARDIS. Right, exactly. Whatever it was. <laughs> right. <laughs> But yeah, uh, so, okay, so there's Susan, and we have barely mentioned Ian, and I think that that is a travesty that needs to be remedied. I absolutely love Ian. I love him and Barbara together. I think that that relationship is one of the best parts about early Doctor Who, uh, because you see these two people who are obviously madly, insanely in love with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I think you're wrong about that. I think you're wrong about that. Oh, um, Eric, you're, you're, I thought you agreed with me about that. I do, except for one thing. Mm-hmm. I think that Ian is madly in love with her. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that she is not quite there until later okay oh no um, I, I, I can see that and i mean she's certainly um ha- making eyes at leon colbert you know and ganatus oh yeah you're right and ganatus right i mean right out of the i mean like you know right out of the gate they're on an alien planet and what does she do she chats up the the nearest blonde dude she can find <laughs> in the fantastic pants i just want to say 
<laughs> yeah. See, I think the thing's Barbara's just waiting for Ian to make a move, and Ian's just like too, too, too shy to do it. So she's like, "All right, I'll, I'll, I'll give time to this tall guy who's looking at me. If you're not gonna, whatever, you know." I think it's that. <laughs> I think she's just waiting. He dismisses her like at important moments. I mean, we're we're hanging out with Marco Polo, and she's like, "There's some, there's some shady going down." We need to go check it out. And he's like, shh, I want to listen to the story. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Oh, and then Barbara and Susan, he sees them being taken off in a cart to go be guillotined. And he's told they're going to go be guillotined. And he's not flipping out in that cell. And then when he sees them alive later, it's like, oh, hi, guys. <laughs> well, he is very cool. Yes. <laughs> I have less of a problem with Reign of Terror, but I get your point in Marco Polo that he is a little dismissive of Barbara in that scene. I don't like the idea that they are engaged in some sort of sexual relationship. No. Um, no. No, it's the 60s. That wouldn't have been proper, it's, and they're proper people. It is, it's like, yeah. They're, they're like courting, but too shy to officially say so. Right, yeah, so that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally chaste. Right, um, right yeah, because I, yeah, I know like some fans who are like, oh no, they're constantly banging in the tart, and I'm, no. No, no. no. Don't do this to no. my... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean ian also i i kind of like the fact that you know i mean i make jokes about it that he's like sort of the dad quote unquote of the group because he makes dad jokes and stuff like that but it's like he's so uh, what's the word like he's so like straight laced and so like but but at the same time william russell is so good at portraying that character that's just so you know, like, like, like uh, such a classical hero type of character mm-hmm. that, yeah. that it doesn't come off as being like goofy or nerdy or whatever. Like you just, you just like him, you know, you like the fact that you know that you can depend on this guy, that he's always going to be there, especially whenever Barbara has a problem. And he's yeah. like, what, what happened with Barbara? I, I heard Barbara say something, you know, <laughs> Unless she's being carted to certain death. Yeah. Oh, geez. You know, I had never thought of that. But he is totally Mike Brady. <laughs> I mean, Nathan told me those were actually the actors like two weeks off and they filmed they filmed his scenes like ahead of yeah. time and just kind of inserted them in. But man, their reunion was way too subdued. To be fair, we don't see the reunion because that's one of the missing episodes. We just hear the audio track. So mm-hmm. there might be more to those scenes than we can see. Maybe he was into Leon Colbert. <laughs> I mean, he was a very suave man. <laughs> yeah, see, like, Juliet saw no problem with Leon, but, like, the second I saw Leon and the way he, like, circles Barbara like a shark, I'm like, I this know, guy's right? bad news. <laughs> I knew you were shifty. Come on. I just wanted someone who wasn't creepy fur trader out in the <laughs> snow hitting on Barbara. <laughs> She deserved a nice-looking gentleman. <laughs> or the jailer. <laughs> yeah, poor Barbara. Everybody hit on her. <laughs> Again, this is a kid's show, but they do these really dark things with Barbara, with these men that are clearly about to rape her twice. One's propositioning her with the jailer, and the other one's going to rape her. We don't know if he was going to rape her or eat her. Oh, true. Yeah, you're yeah, right. There is, there is that the possibility snow. out did seem like he was talking about cooking her up. Yeah, and skinning her to boot. Mm-hmm. He probably needed a new lampshade or something. <laughs> <you know. laughs> 
Yeah, see, I always assumed that was a metaphor when he was saying stuff like that, but but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it taken literally, yeah. That could be. I mean, it could have been both. Oh, okay. <laughs> let's move. Let's move on from that one. But yeah, I mean, I, but Ian, like, anyone else have anything to say about Ian? It took some time for him to grow on me. Mm. Like I. I I knew right off the bat that he was like one he was your boy and he and Barbara were your OTP. Yes. But like it took some time because he was seemed to be the most resistant. It bothered me that he couldn't be more open-minded like no this isn't happening. No, no, no. But he grew on me a bit. He has his moments again where he just dismisses Barbara and I have to to want to restrain myself from reaching out and smacking the computer screen when I'm watching. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he represents what a lot of people would actually be like. And maybe people, you know, while they want to believe they'd be as open-minded as Barbara, secretly deep down, they have a feeling that, no, they're probably going to be more like Ian. And stuff like that is just so far beyond what they could believe that they'd be resistant to it. So I think he's much more of the every man. And I like that about him, even if it took a little while for him to grow on me like a fungus. <laughs> I've always been troubled by the fact that Barbara immediately kind of believes them mm. in an unearthly child and beyond, but Ian doesn't. And and the reason that bothers me is not because of their position so much, but it seems like it's setting up some kind of theme for them or something, and it's never really paid off in the rest of the season. Eventually, Ian just sort of believes, I guess, when you're getting spears thrown at you by cavemen <laughs> kind of hard believe to believe anything <laughs> but there's no moment in there where there's any kind of resolution to that tension between them and i think that that's unfortunate because it's a nice character uh beat i guess between them mm-hmm. i like to think that barbara maybe secretly before meeting the doctor wrote science fiction novels under a pen name and that's why she's okay with it <laughs> <laughs> Well, she's clearly spent a lot of time thinking about how she's going to alter Aztec society <laughs> if she gets there. Look, I can't blame her for that. She wants to make the world a better place. Yeah. You suppose she's really Harry Turtle Dove? I mean, she's not quite the master of alternate history that he is. Well, that's because Doctor Who told her not to. Oh, yeah, the Doctor <laughs> never alters anything. <laughs> not one line. Not one line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, the Aztecs is, is so interesting because it does, it does what no time travel stories ever does, right? Like, because every time travel story is either about, you know, literally, like, the impossibility of, of changing anything and you just create, like, a paradox kind of thing, or you do change history. And Doctor Who, it's... She tries, and it's more has to do with the, the the society not accepting it than with any kind of like trying to create time travel paradoxes or anything like that, like like a normal science fiction show would do. And I'm I'm always fascinated by that. That like the Aztecs uses the whole time travel element, it uses the whole idea of changing history, but like not in a way that any other time travel story, whether televised or in books or anything that I've ever seen, does it. Yeah, I it's it's um. Well, it's masterful, isn't it? Mm. But really, it's because that story is about the drama of Altlock, in a way. Mm. Because Barbara directly alters that man's life and basically ruins him. 
And oddly enough, she really doesn't feel terribly bothered about that at all. <laughs> I mean, she feels a little guilt, but. Well, I mean, I think it's more about Barbara's hubris. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's what the story is. Yes. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, really, I think I think it's a subversion of kind of the white savior trope of, you know, like so many, so many of these mm -hmm. kind of stories about, you know, the white person coming in and saving the, you know, the, the poor natives. But this is like the opposite of that. It's like you it's it, the whole point of it is you can't as an outsider come into a society and expect to change it overnight and a have that work or b have that do any or have your efforts do any good. You know what I mean? And and I think mm -hmm. that that's like that's a really like you never see stories saying that almost ever in any kind of media so i think that's that's a really great thing to to have and and i think it's so great because like i mean barbara's like here basically given the power of a god and like but like her impulse is like to help people you know i mean like killing anyone for any religion is bad i i would think so like her, her impulse like hey let's not kill people for religions like it's good i mean of course there's a way she can effectively do that. You can't change the society from the outside. But I think that says a lot about her as a character that she's given basically unlimited power. And she's like, she just, she doesn't take anything for herself. She wants to help. So even though she's wrong, it's, it's kind of for a right reason. And it's, you know, which kind of makes it gives that dramatic tension. And it's just, it's a great story. And just like the production is beautiful and well-researched and just, yeah, it's, it's a good one. It's just really relevant for any time. Uh, any time period in, in our society for because Barbara's imposing her own value system on a completely different culture and and beings and they have to remind you like the people that are getting killed or sacrificed they're volunteering they have no illusions about what's going to happen to them they know in fact one dude just like leaps off mm -hmm. but it's it's that thing, you know, Barbara had Barbara was raised, I'm pretty sure, you know, Christian and so on like that. Barbara has a very specific set of values and ethics and she's trying to impose that on a society that that is not the case. And it's just I think it's a I think it's a big thing to point out that that's it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And the doctor has to remind her it's not okay to do that. I mean, I know that you feel like killing people is wrong, and I feel like killing people like that is wrong, but they don't, and their whole society is based on this right now, and so you mm -hmm. got to let them go. Yeah, I mean, even taking the time travel element out of this, if this was a Star Trek story, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy would beam down to the planet, see the sacrifices. By the end of the episode, they'd have stopped it, completely changed the society, and just beamed <laughs> off and said, sorry, problem <laughs> solved, everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah, you have to get to the next generation before we have the prime directed them or they don't interfere. Right. Okay, I got to ask a question, though. Speaking of the Aztecs, I was completely, while watching it, reminded, and Nathan hasn't seen it as far as I know yet, reminded completely and could not stop thinking about the cartoon movie, uh, The Road to El Dorado. And the reason for that is apparently both this and that cartoon took their original inspiration from Hemingway story called uh, The Man Who Would Be King. But have Eric, Miranda, have you guys seen The Road to El Dorado? Did you get the same feeling I did? Yeah, I've not seen that, no. I have seen The Road to El Dorado, and it did really, it reminded me of that a lot. <laughs> okay, good. It wasn't just me. <laughs> I just had to ask, because then I got curious. I was like, did Road to El Dorado get their inspiration from this Doctor Who episode? Because it was really similar set, you know, with the Aztecs. Now, and then I found out they're, they're kind of, they both took inspiration from a Hemingway story that was set in a different time and different place but with the same ideas called the man who would be king 
So we've talked a good amount about the the three companions. We we touched a, on the doctor for for a bit, but I think there's maybe a little more to talk about with the doctor, especially with the fact that he starts off. And, and this is kind of my issue with a lot of you know, a lot of people that come back to watch Doctor Who and they want to watch the early stuff or start from the beginning. The reaction I hear so often is, well, I either I watched the first one or maybe even I watched an Earthly Child and the Daleks. Oh, the doctor is just so awful in these early ones. I just cannot watch this. And the people just are like, no, I'm just going to watch new series or I'm going to skip to a different time period, like the seventies and watch Tom Baker or whatever. And I, I, th- I think, I mean, obviously people aren't prepared for how different it is in the sixties, but I'm just kind of curious about people's feelings about the doctor and the fact that he does kind of evolve over this first season. Like, did you find that difficult? Because I think other than Eric, Eric, you started with Hartnell, right? More or less. Yeah. I think the rest of us all came to, to, uh, you know, Hartnell after having seen later Dr. Who, how off putting did you find that? And what do you think about just the way that Hartnell's performance and, and the writing for the doctor, you know, kind of evolves over the season? So let's start with you on this one, Miranda. I love that he has a character arc. I mean, you know, of course, when I started watching, yes, he was very unpleasant. I didn't like him, you know, but I'm like, well, you know, it's Doctor Who's history. I got to watch it. And, you know, and I stuck with it. And by the end of the season, he was, you know, my new favorite doctor. I mean, it just, mm. just, just watching him, like, kind of let his guard down and let Ian and Barbara in and just kind of becoming the doctor that we know. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And Hartnell's performance is just so good. And just it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see how people could, could watch the at the whole first season, like, and not, and still think of the doctor as like prickly and mean and stuff. Cause it's like, he, he changes like so, you know, so beautifully. I mean, and he's, he's actually like, he's one of the, the doctors who's most openly affectionate to, you know, certainly to Susan and to Ian and Barbara as well. And it's such a beautiful thing to watch how they become this family and just to see the doctor's character arc of being, you know, very, you know, kind of xenophobic, insular, and just as he just learns to kind of like embrace other people and embrace the universe and just become this more joyous, loving character. And, you know, actually, I think that character arc and Hartnell's performance is what enabled Doctor Who to have the format of changing doctors that it had. Because for me, when I watched it, and I'm probably getting a little head for Juliet, sorry, but like, you know, when the Hartnell doctor, you know, when he became Patrick Troughton, his doctor, like, it didn't feel jarring. It made sense because who the doctor became as the second doctor felt like the natural evolution of the first doctor's arc. And I just like, I just, it's so beautiful. And I, I don't know how much of it was design and how much of it was just Cardinal's performance, but it's just like, it's, it's amazing. And I just, I love it so much. <laughs> I just like, you know, I just like, I can't even talk like how much I love this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing. And, I, and you understand why children loved him so much. He's like the world's coolest grandfather, right? Yes. He's a little paternalistic sometimes, and he's trying to be protective of Susan, and maybe you could argue a little overly so. But beyond that, like, especially with Susan, and, and, and it's interesting when you have that scene in the Reign of Terror with the kid, I think his name is Jean-Pierre, that uh, rescues him from the fire. 
like how like doting he is on children and everything and and mm-hmm. how he has this sort of like special sort of relationship with 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 younger people and whatever like this is a kid who never grew up and so yeah as a kid who never grew up you know even though he looks old that can come off as prickly and 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 you know sometimes quick to temper just like a kid and so mm-hmm. you get this sort of like element of he's both very old and very young you know, within the same character, which is funny because they hadn't thought about regeneration yet. They didn't have that idea when they wrote this show. It works so well now in hindsight Mm -hmm. because of the idea of, well, this is the youngest doctor. So even though he looks old externally, he is actually very young for his species. And his performance allows that to to be sort of like the lens that we look at with that. And I I absolutely love that. I I think that it's great that that works even with all the the stuff that they've they've put on the doctor since then. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, the other thing I guess I'd bring up is there seems to be a moment in, in the Censorites at the end when he kind of goes back to that, right? Where he's like, oh, are you questioning me on the ship? I'm going to just throw you out next time we stop. It takes Ian like 15 seconds to twist his arm and get him to come <laughs> with them. And you kind of know that the doctor knows. Like, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, the doctor, like, like Ian thinks he's getting one over on the doctor. But you kind of know that the doctor knows what's happening. And at the same time, is kind of like mollified since he got mad at them. But he doesn't want to admit it. And so he's just going along with it and pretending that it's like, oh, well, because he asked me to go, I'm going kind of thing. That's, and again, it's all sold in the performance. But I don't believe for a second that he would have really like taken a hard line on it unless he had really gotten them back to 1960s Earth that he would have been like, okay, you're gone. You see, I, I honestly, in the unaired pilot is where I see the angry doctor that scared me and that I mm. did not like. Like he was, even his facial expressions looked kind of sinister in that one. But I really liked the evolution of this doctor. He still comes off every now and then as his prequely self. But maybe this is because I started with Ninth Doctor and Ninth Doctor is still very much my favorite, who is a bit of a darker doctor uh, from what I understand. He's a bit darker than later on, but I'm okay with the more alone. The doctors who have been, who obviously have been alone. I like, I mean, I'm not counting Susan. I'm talking like separated from other species as much. It takes accidentally having two, two humans just hanging out with them for him to start seeing things in a different way. And that was kind of neat to me to see that his relationship with Barbara, even though he still dismisses her and gets angry with her later on, was one of my favorite things to see was where he actually started to appreciate her, her intelligence and just who she was. Yeah. Eric, any more thoughts on the, the Hartnell doctor? Oh, gosh, I have all kinds of thoughts about it. <laughs> I don't really see him as being mean i see him as being sort of curmudgeonly and like every university professor i ever had you know well maybe not everyone but (laughs) you know some of the really good ones anyway um Mm -hmm. that sort of absent-minded professor thing that that i don't know i always gravitated towards when i was a student and have probably turned into in my own dotage so i i never saw his his uh outbursts as malevolence uh except you know early on maybe but it also helps that you know i had a grandfather quite a bit like him who was prone to those kind of mood swings and uh abrupt decisions that when taken 
couldn't be untaken because then he would look silly. And so you had to kind of stroke his ego. So the first doctor is sort of like something I was pretty used to. (laughs) (laughs) And I honestly, I would say that in 1963, a lot of people would have been used to that in, you know, working class Britain. Uh, And, you know, if, if it had been broadcast here, people would have seen similarities because I think the first doctor is despite his trappings very much a kind of stern kind of parental middle-class parental figure. I said working class, but I guess I mean what we would call middle-class today. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because yeah, a lot of that I think stems from the fact that even within the character, you know, we think about the fact that the doctor has been so much smarter than most of the people that he's interacted with that he does sort of see himself as like, well, I've got all the answers. And so of course you should just listen to everything that I say. And he gets offended when people don't, <laughs> but it, it's again, it's edge of destruction that gets him to realize that, Oh, sometimes other people have points that I should listen to too, even if they don't have lots of credentials or, you know, cause he's sometimes excited to meet people of particular note or of particular learning, right? Like, Oh, Oh, this is somebody I can treat as an equal. But it's Barbara that sort of teaches him that people have value intrinsically and can have opinions that are valid and, and, and thoughts and ideas that are valid, you know, even if you don't see them as somebody of great learning or superior intellect or whatever. And I think that's part of that evolution of that character as well. Well, look at how gently he treats her in the Aztecs at the mm. end, especially like instead of just like yelling at her or anything really at the end, he kind of sympathizes with her just a bit. He, he or maybe empathizes might be the better phrase because I'm sure that at some point in his life he's had the desire to do something like that well he even tells her that he he has tried and failed it doesn't work now uh, so while we're talking about how he completely stops being a malevolent bastard <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to remember just how ruthlessly he uses Kameka in that and mm. I know that we're, we're all going to say, but isn't it sweet that he, you know, takes her brooch with him? Yeah, but he, he uses the hell out of her. And why doesn't he take Kameka with him at the end if he really liked her, you know? Right, no, I mean, it's... It's yeah. pretty brutal. Yeah. I was sad about that. Yeah, because, I mean, I like, to, I like to argue that he was just kind of thrown into the circumstance and didn't know how to tell her that he completely misunderstood the the Coco, you know, situation, but at the same time, he doesn't really do anything to really stop it until he tells her, I can't take you with me. Basically. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't disabuse her of the notion at all. (laughs) I think part of that, that was, I think part of that was the doctor really did like her. And I think he was enjoying having just that moment of, Oh yes, I'm going to, I'm going to marry this nice lady and just enjoying his moment of having romance. And not thinking about, yeah, I'm going to have to break her heart by leaving pretty soon, you know. Because, I mean, you know, at that point, he is still a little bit of his kind of selfish self. And, you know, I think he was just indulging himself a little bit. And and just putting away the thoughts of, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to hurt her. I don't think it was malevolent at all. Well, yeah, you can't see the way that he, like, interacts with her without thinking that there's something there. I mean, he obviously is interested in her and cares about her. Absolutely. I'm not saying that he didn't like her or love her or whatever but nonetheless he uses that to his advantage and in that respect he's really not 
you know, she's just another rock getting ready to go over the head of a caveman. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, the, the moment truth. that she'll live in infamy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably the thing that I think, uh, if, if there's one thing that probably breaks people who go back to watch Doctor Who from the beginning, it's that that he was willing to bash Zaw's head in with the rock. And yeah, we never see him get that far because Ian grabs his arm beforehand. And he says he was going to have him draw a map, but mm, nothing about the way it's acted like gives the impression <laughs> that, that was legitimate. And just a shout out to Weris Hussein, who uh, that story is incredibly beautifully directed. And that moment in particular is so ambiguous precisely because of the way it's directed. No, that's a fair statement, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, there, there's just the slightest amount that you can put in there to say, like, maybe yeah. he really was just getting him to draw a map, and that's what it was. But but it seems like that's not what the actors are thinking while they're acting the scene. Like, the way that he acts, like, like he's been caught. Right, like, yeah. that seems like the, the way they've worked it out is, yeah, he was really going to bash his head, and Ian just caught him. But, yeah, that, that is hard. That is hard to watch. But the thing is, he doesn't even, like, accept, though, that the cavemen are sentient beings. And oh, that's where the issue comes from. And even Ian has a problem. Like, he tells Barbara, like, she wants to help them that, oh, you must have, like, an apartment, like, full of cats <laughs> or whatever, you know, stray cats <laughs> or whatever. And Barbara's the one, like, these are people. <laughs> you know, you can't liken them to animals. Yeah, well, admittedly, though, Barbara, Barbara's opinions change like the wind in that story. I don't know. She, Barbara likes to feel morally superior to people, too. <laughs> it's because she usually is, Eric. She usually I understand is. that. I'm not, <laughs> I am not questioning the almighty Barbara. I'm just, right. I'm just pointing it out. Sometimes you just have to bash some brains and morphoton in. I mean, That's you know, right. I'm that is true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she doesn't mind the uh, Aztecs. I mean, excuse me, she doesn't want the Aztecs to uh, execute people, uh, sacrifice people, but she's really okay with bashing in the uh, cell jars of Morphoton. <laughs> well, they were money-controlling people, so... Right. And Tlatoxel wasn't. <laughs> Self-defense is different. They were terrifying. Oh, man. All right. So, I mean, I realize that this might be a little bit hard, but it's one of those things that whenever you're talking about, like, a season of a television show, it's just one of the standard things you do. What is your favorite story this season? Let's start with you on this one, Julia. I think you probably I think I probably know what your favorite story is, but I I'm kind of curious what you're going to say. Like I am torn to pick my favorite story. Okay. You can only pick one though. I know. I know. If I have to pick one that I just think was the best overall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, see, I thought I knew what one you were going to pick. So oh, this is interesting. Oh, I'm that sure going. that you know it's one of the two that I'm sitting here like <laughs> agonizing over. You don't understand. Because you spent 30 minutes like detailing like the history. Yeah, no. I was me. actually, that, that was what I was going to land on. Because as much as I love the Daleks, and they are probably always going to be my favorite Doctor Who villains, and Dione and Thal fashion, and everything <laughs> I want to know about Scaro, I mean, I need to know these things. And I, seriously need to know the reign of terror the reign of whole reign of terror arc first of all 
French history. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I went off for like 20 minutes on like the details of the French Revolution and rebellions that span so many years. <laughs> yeah, but really, it's Leon Colbert. I'm so primed for the fact that the American like educational system is so bad with world history. Like, like we know our own history pretty well, but it's like stuff that happened in Europe. We don't even teach that in school until you get to college, you know, like we just give you sort of broad strokes, you know? So like, uh, you know, I, I've always expected, I'm like, yeah, like Julianne, I'm going to explain to you about the French. No, she she (laughs) totally schooled me on the French revolution, gave me all kinds of information. I didn't know. Like, actually, it spans this amount of time, and there were multiple (laughs) revolutions and rebellions, and here's where the reign of terror fell. And if you're talking about, you know, fictional events, here's where Les Mis falls, here's where uh, the uh, Phantom of the Opera happens. (laughs) Oh, no, it was bad. I went all off on the French Revolution. but I was impressed. I was impressed. (laughs) See, because Doctor Who, the whole reason I even, like, care about history was because I watched Doctor Who when I was little, and I was like, I gotta know more about this. So I always, like, was like, oh, what are the, I don't know anything about the Aztecs. I gotta find out more about the Aztecs, stuff like that. I mean, giant Scarlet Pimpernel fan, so the moment I hear Reign of Terror, and I'm like, we're in France! Oh yeah, Robespierre, bring it on! (laughs) And I'm like, guillotine, guillotine! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm seriously I was watching all of it just like thrilled and the only complaint that I had about it was that I felt like it should have been one episode shorter or one episode longer to like really I felt for some reason I felt like it was an awkward number we didn't either give me enough or give we gave me too little but overall the storyline the intrigue the characters I thought it was so much fun I thoroughly enjoyed it I thought they did a good I thought they did well with the time period and the fear Honestly, the fear that was mm. that was pervasive throughout France at the time, I loved so much of it that I really, it just made me smile the entire time. Everything about it, like I said, other than the one thing, I think I even gave it like a nine or a nine and a half. Out, you out gave of it hand. a nine, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was good. That was, <laughs> I think, my favorite with the Dalek arc, a close second, like mm. really close. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the fascinating thing about that one to me, though. You brought about the, you brought out the fear and everything is like, the juxtaposition of how terrifying and dark the time period is with oh, the don't fact say that his they're, traveling it, music, right? <laughs> the, the, the humor <laughs> that they put into the the story, and yes, yes, the jaunty tune also um, <laughs> for the doctor, like face palming over here right now. But yeah, that's what's so like really fascinating to me, and I really think without knowing, you know, you know a lot about the the actual writing of the story. Because cause we'll get Dennis Spooner, that writer, back in the next couple of seasons. And the tone is definitely different in, in those later ones. I think that this is the fusion of David Whitaker and Dennis Spooner. Mm. Or it could just be that Dennis Spooner was just finding his voice and, and he, his style morphed a little bit. But, but I think that it is because I think this is, this is the only time we get David Whitaker script editing Dennis Spooner. And I think that he's drawing back. Spooner tends to go a little more overly comedic you know, in later stories, you know, or I, I just should say overly, but he's more comedic, you know, he goes for it a lot more heavily, whereas I think Whitaker might be bringing him back a bit, and that's why he's, he's trying to inject into, like, this is a time period where some really awful stuff was going on, and you have to have that terror, you know, it's in the title, you have to have that terror, you know, be, be part of it. Like, I can even overlook Susan's overly dramatic migraine, um, <laughs> just for the fact that Everything else about this episode was great. Even Leon was great, as terrible as he turned out to be. Yeah. 
I don't know. He just sends off warning flags for me every time I see it. And, and it's acted well. I mean, I think his name's Edward Brayshaw, who plays that role, is really good at what he's doing. He definitely seems like a very charismatic person. But it's just, he's, he's like the kind of person that makes my hackles rise. Like, you know? <laughs> but there's a good reason for that. You probably associate him with a different role. Well, uh, to be fair, yeah, although I didn't, I didn't know that, uh, you know, like at first, like, like I know that now that he plays a different character in another story later on, but because they, he looks so different between those two roles and I, and now I can hear the voice, you know, like now I, once I learned, I could hear the voice in my head for both roles. And I was like, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, same, definitely the same voice. It's like how, um, Philip Maddock, Eric, doesn't look the same in any two stories that he ever does in Doctor <laughs> Who. <laughs> like, wow, he looks so different. But man, you're touching on it, though. The acting throughout the episode by even the side characters, the jailer, as bumbling as he is mm. and as creepy as he is toward Barbara initially. Robespierre, who mm. has, even in the, ep- the Reconstruction episodes, I can hear it in his voice. He is selling it. Mm. But, I mean, our, our French revolutionaries... They're brilliant. I just, I feel like everybody seriously gave it their all. Even Susan, giving it her all for that migraine. (laughs) And the rats. (laughs) And, oh, God, please, no. (laughs) Juliet is very pragmatic. So when she sees people jump up from rats, it's like, but you're digging your way out. That's more important. You know, she gets... (laughs) Guillotine rats. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's <laughs> priorities, people. <laughs> so, uh, Miranda, what about you? What's your favorite story from the season? Oh, that's so hard. They're just <laughs> all so very good. See, it's not just me. Yeah, I guess I guess I would pick the Aztecs. I mm. mean, it's just it's got everything. It's got great drama, great production. I mean, it has romance, it has comedy, it has action. It's just lots of Barbara. <laughs> yeah. Has the bad guys <laughs> winning at the end? Yeah, yeah I mean, it was definitely an untraditional kind of story, you know. So I I give it props for its really for its originality and just yeah, and I it's just yeah. I, th- I think I'd go with that one. You know, it's a good point that you bring up, Juliet, because it's kind of like, you know, so many shows nowadays, uh, I mean, I think even back then, they never want you to see the good guys lose, right? You never right. want you, you, you never want to see that, you know? So even if it's a show that goes on and you can say like, well, they can lose in this episode, but we'll show them winning, you know, again later or whatever. It's like, that seems to be a kind of, you know, like, like a thing that... that just a taboo within within stories i mean some shows break that i mean eric knows how big of a fan of babylon 5 i am and that's because of the fact that it was serialized they could do things like that of hey sometimes our characters lose or sometimes they don't achieve their objective but yeah i I think that that's it's nice to have that in a show where every once in a while it's almost like a palate cleanser or whatever that like and it gives you that air, like that air of uncertainty with their further stories is, you know, like, hey, this one didn't turn out so well for that. I mean, you could argue like for the course of history or whatever, it turned out the way it was supposed to. But that's not the way they feel about it. I'm curious, Miranda, you sounded like me, like you were waffling between a couple of them. What was it about the Aztecs that tipped you over the, uh, your other choice? 
I think it was because we had more of the of the family interaction dynamic between the TARDIS team. I mean, my other one I was going to go was the Daleks, which obviously <laughs> is a huge classic. But, you know, I, I love that Daleks is before Edge of Destruction happens. And I feel like Edge of Destruction is the real, like, pivot point where where the TARDIS team really, truly coalesces, like, mm-hmm. as a family. And so uh, Aztecs is, is after that. And I just, I love their interactions with each other. And I just, I love just the depth of their relationships. And I love to just see the interplay between them and, you know, how they support each other and debate each other and all these things. And Aztecs has has a lot of that. So I think that that tipped it for me. You're right, because even though it's definitely Barbara's story and she's the central figure, Ian and the Dutton, now Susan gets the least to do because Carol Ann Ford was on vacation for two episodes. So, you know, it probably doesn't serve Susan that much. Well, she has that great, great, you know, I'm not going to marry someone I don't love. Right. Like, I'm, yes. I'm so proud of that Susan, good, you know? <laughs> great characterization, sure. Well, and that's nice because, again, it's John Lucarotti who's, who also wrote Marco Polo. And here's a little continuity that he can throw in of, of Susan being aghast at the idea of arranged marriage with Ping Cho carrying forward into the Aztecs, where it's like she's, she's already encountered this. She's already made her opinions known. And then she's faced with the same, you know, idea here. And she's like, absolutely not. And I like that. I, I, like, I, I like John Lucarotti's writing in general. I think that he's fantastic. There's something very Shakespearean about the Aztecs mm. in, in the way yeah. that the dialogue is written. And, and I think that that's one of Lucarati's strengths. I, I know, I, I, I think the Marco Polo, which I know we're getting off the Aztecs with that, is, just, is one of the most quotable stories in Doctor Who, just because like everything Tagana says is gold. It's like, <laughs> it's like he has so many great lines. But yeah, the Aztecs, though, is so well written. And it's like a lost Shakespeare play or something. It's, it's like one of the tragedies. I, I absolutely adore it. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Eric, what would be your pick? Well, it, you know, you can't ever pick just one. But <laughs> I will go with Marco Polo. To me, Marco Polo is the great queen, much as Barbara is the queen of the companions. Marco Polo is the queen of the series. It is the great royal you know, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it. it. It's just the majestic addition to the series that we've been denied all these years. I have incredibly happy memories of listening to the soundtrack the first time it was released. And I, if it's as good as it was on audio, I just, it must be a magnificent piece of television. Well, and I mean, I know you must have been over the moon when the telesnaps were found. Yes, I was. So, so we actually get a pretty good indication of what it looked like as well. Yes. And it was one of the better served stories because the Radio Times did that, that spread on it, you know, because they didn't get it for the first episode, but then they got it for yes. Marco Polo, that there are so many actual photos taken so so i mean marco polo for a missing story one that doesn't have any episodes we actually have quite a bit of of stuff at least to look at and listen to regard to the story so that it it can help to sort of recreate but i agree with you i i would love to see marco polo now i if i may because marco polo is probably a very predictable choice for me and i'd like to give actual i'd like to give honorable mention to the censorites which is an unloved story but i think is actually a very sophisticated piece in a lot of ways but my very favorite episode i think of the entire series all 26 years 
is the first episode of the Daleks, which mm. I think is one of the most terrifying, unsettling pieces of television I've ever set eyes on. And it starts with them showing up in this creepy-ass forest that is, has the sound effects and soundscape of a nuclear holocaust mm -hmm. and ends with Barbara being menaced by this unseen enemy after she's been basically driven insane by running around hysterically in the uh, corridors of the Dalek City. And that shot pound, really well, too. And is oh it, my yeah, God. Isn't it the end shot from like that POV? Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, oh. And I think pound for pound, that 25 minutes is the best episode in the series. It conveys terror and loss and, my God, where the hell are we? <laughs> and we're being irradiated by nuclear fallout. And it's just an incredible piece of television. It right. is a beautiful let's, let's, let's back up just a second from the Daleks because that was going to be my pick. Uh, no, no, no! You can still have it. Right, I, right, yeah. to... I, I want to talk about Marco Polo for a minute, though, though, because okay. you know I want us all to talk about Marco Polo because I, I and well, and, and I think it's kind of interesting, and I think it's kind of telling about one of the things about season one is that the three of you each picked a historical because mm, yeah, yeah. this is one of the things that I've been saying for a long time is that the the historicals age so much better than the science fiction stories in general i'm gonna throw off your theory though okay because marco polo is probably my least favorite of the arcs of this first season okay and it's pacing it's for it's almost purely for pacing reasons get the guillotine barbara but like, I didn't like the dismissal of Barbara the entire time. Mm. But, man, the pacing, it just felt like by the last episode or two, I was dragging through it. And maybe it was because they were reconstructions. I can't, I, I can only say from, you know, the fact that I have listened and watched the reconstructions as they are. But for me, Marco Polo was just my least favorite. I'm not saying it was bad. But I'm pretty sure it was my least favorite of the first season. Yeah, it would be not. I mean, it would be interesting if they ever were recovered to see if your opinion changed. Because I know that there are stories that I thought weren't particularly good that come later. And when they were discovered, my opinion on them completely changed. You know, I thought that, you know, like, Enemy of the World, Eric and Miranda will know what I'm talking about, was one that mm -hmm. I never really thought that highly of until I saw it. And then I was like, wow, this is a way better story than I thought it was. Each one of, sorry, each one of those episodes of Marco Polo deserves to be savored like a fine port and you see i don't like port that might be the problem <laughs> <laughs> they are just exquisite pieces of art that need to be appreciated mm. rather than i think and i don't know if you did this and it, it doesn't matter but i think the tendency is to try and rush through them as part of a one night or two nights or whatever and it really is best served by stringing it across those seven weeks i think I think I actually watched them about two at a time on that one. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I'll say uh, to Eric's point, when I tried to get my wife to watch 60s Doctor Who with me, it was really hard, and she didn't always watch them with me until I started going one episode at a time. And even doing it one a night, you know, like, and so instead of doing, like, a whole serial and then waiting a week and then doing another serial, we'd do one a night. And then she would sit down, she would do one a night. And I think a lot of classic who, especially if you have difficulty with the pacing, 
you know, a lot of 60s who, I should say, is a lot easier to take that way. And then you get the cliff and the cliffhangers then actually have meaning too, which, you know, nowadays when we can just binge everything, the cliffhangers sort of become superfluous. Maybe, but I blew through the Daleks and the Reign of Terror all in one day each. Mm. I just, because I couldn't stop. I wanted to know what happened next and I loved them both. Mm. Okay. No, it's fair enough. It's fair enough. What, what's your opinion on Marco Polo, Miranda? Well, you know, because it's one of the missing episodes, it's kind of hard to have, like, have an opinion on it. I mean, like, because we can only hear it and then look at the pictures that we have and kind of imagine what it was. I mean... Uh, so, oh, oh, let me back up just a second. Uh, do, do you listen to it as an audio CD or have you watched the reconstruction or both? No, I listened to it as an audio CD. Okay. And I was kind of flipping through the telesnaps as mm. I was listening. So okay. I was I was kind of reconstructing it in my mind. So mm. I'm yeah, maybe if I watched the recon, maybe it would be different. But I mean, I'm intrigued by it. I mean, so much of what was what what was there was like really good. And I just like I just I just wish I could actually see it. You know what I mean? Mm. I just because I mean, there's there's I mean, the production design is just out of this world gorgeous. Mm. And, you know, I mean, they're just and there's just so much like good stuff. Like I, like I love Ping Cho and I just like, and you know, her friendship with Susan and just, you know, there's a lovely conversation that Susan and Barbara have about, you know, traveling and, you know, and just, there's just, there's so much good stuff in there. And I just, I just really miss being able to like see the actors performances, you know, on their faces and it's tantalizing. I, I, I like it, but I'm saddened that we don't have like the full depth of it. Yeah, there's something funny that happens in Marco Polo where suddenly Susan becomes Beatnik Girl. And, you know, everything's like, hey, we're with it. It's freaky, crazy. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, what happened? Like, Susan's never like this in the whole rest of the, you know, the series. Well, she also doesn't get to hang out with anyone that's sort of approximately her apparent age. That's a fair point, actually. Maybe that's bringing it out of her, where she's like, I'm going to use all the cool lingo from the 1960s with Bing Cho, so I'll be a popular kid for once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know i i think well i mean the, the the problem with marco polo i think unless you consider the fact of season one being this sort of experimental sort of magical time in the series where anything can happen is that suddenly the star of the show becomes marco polo you know it becomes more about him than it does about our main cast which is the thing that i guess might be the most off-putting or strange to, to somebody watching it because he becomes the central figure and then everybody's revolving around him. I don't think that that's bad. Uh, you know, I actually really like the story quite a bit, but it is definitely kind of strange when you think about it in that context. Yeah, I think you're overdrawing that a little bit, but I think it's weird that he and uh, that Mark Eden and Darren Nesbitt both appear in... <laughs> A prisoner episode together. And wasn't the like Kublai four Khan years later. actor in that too? I've always thought that was really the Kublai Khan actor is in that what? one too, isn't he? Because there's three so, of them no. that are in that episode. Oh, he might be. Yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in that one too. Oh, I have to look that up. I I don't know offhand. But anyway, anyway, I mean, his role I think isn't as big as theirs. But but yeah, all three of them are in in a, in a prisoner episode. You know, we've totally skipped over you and your favorite episode and why, Nathan. Well, no, no, I was going to do me last. Okay. 
because we we just got off on this tangent of Marco Polo. Well, no, I mean, I wanted, I wanted because because Eric jumped from saying Marco Polo to talking about the sensory rights of the Daleks, and I was like, wait a minute, let's talk about Marco Polo for just I mean, a few I minutes. I guess I really feel like if they had full episodes, if I could see the recovered episodes, mm-hmm. I might change my opinion about it. It may no longer feel like the pacing is dragging for me. It's fair, and I mean the, the the missing episodes. I mean that is that is the travesty of Doctor Who, is the fact that we can't see all that. And, and the thing is, I mean it's way better than it was when I was a kid. When there were a lot more that were missing, they've actually recovered you know quite a few since you know ninety two, which was the first one I was actually aware of, which is when they found Tomb of the Cybermen in Hong Kong. But they found I don't know like probably twenty episodes, maybe a little more since then. But yeah, but there's still 90-something episodes that are missing total, and that's just awful. But then again, back then, they didn't think reruns were going to be a thing. They thought maybe you'd rerun something once, fairly close to when it aired the first time, and then you would never, you know, see it again. So there was no priority given to preserving stuff, and it's, you know, a different time. But yeah, it's it's so... But the, actually, the lucky thing about Doctor Who, because most shows that lost episodes don't have this, is that we have the sound for all of them because of the fans that would record them on audio tapes. Mm-hmm. Which is amazing. Also, uh-huh. I want to point out, my favorite episodes, Reigns of Terror, did have two reconstructions in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You didn't watch the cartoon? Well, because she's not buying DVDs. Shh! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Juliet, they, they actually animated on the DVD. They animated the fourth and fifth episode. It's, it's awful. I mean, it, it was literally awful. I, I can't watch it. It's so bad. But... Oh, look at my face. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why do you think it's awful? Uh, it's, it's, it's horrifically, like, <laughs> overly detailed in, like, the way that each, every wrinkle of their face moves. It's oh just, God. like, I just, uh, it, it's the worst animation that I've seen of the ones they've animated for, for Doctor Who. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it because I last time I watched it, it was, uh, you know, when I rewatched recently, it was, uh, I did reconstruction on it. I watched it the one time and I'm like, never again. So I just go do the reconstruction when I get to episode four and five and that's how I do it. And like, nope. By the way, it was Martin Miller. You're right. I'd, I'd forgotten about him. You're right. Hubacon. Yeah. Again, it's the funny thing is I've never seen The Prisoner, but I just know that factoid because I've seen the making of Marco Polo documentary. So that Richard Molesworth made. I think it was Richard Molesworth. Anyway, it's one of those guys that does the documentaries for uh, the DVD releases, but he did one for Marco Polo just because. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So so my pick would have been the Aztecs, but since we already mentioned that one, (laughs) I think I will go with the dogs. I'm you're sorry. Still allowed to pick the, you're still allowed no, 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 to pick no, no. the. No, I'll say it's my favorite, but then to talk about, I'll say the Daleks because because okay. we were all talking about things that we think were special about Doctor Who, things that we think might have been the things that sort of cemented in the public eye, and the thing that we didn't mention that we know, you know, historically became so popular is the Daleks and how they really took the imagination of a British children by storm. Verity Lambert talks about them being inundated with calls after that cliffhanger that Eric's mentioning, you know, people calling down to the BBC about how their kids, you know, won't sleep because they're frightened and they need to know what happened next to Barbara and everything. And that's famously when Sidney Newman told Verity Lambert that she knew what she was doing better than he did. And, and he backed away, you know, and gave her, you know, control of the series that he wasn't going to fight her on things anymore and stuff like that. And it's amazing how, 
because nowadays, you know, a lot of people poke fun at the design, but it's amazing how something that is so inhuman in its appearance can cause that sort of deep-rooted fear in children. It, it, you know, I mean, Juliet, you say you're still terrified of Daleks. I am. There's something about that voice, the the multi-layered yeah. voice that freaks me out. Also, I didn't never knew a plunger and an egg beater could look so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but they are, and combined with the voice, I mean, it is very much the other the inhuman the unknown about it that completely freaks me out like i had my phone once set to a ringtone of exterminate and it would go off if i forget to put it on vibrate and i would jump out of my seat yeah you're, you're great point about the voices too because yeah i mean not only were they trying to design them so they didn't look you know because the big thing was you didn't want to look like a robot so no obvious legs they just sort of glide across the floor that sort of thing but you're right also the voices using that ring modulator to take out a lot of the tone of it and making it sound more grating in the way that they spoke. And, and that's, you know, such a, such a fascinating part of that. I think the Daleks is a much better story. Again, I mean, and, and I know that I do this a lot where I talk about fan opinion, but I have an ax to grind against a lot of fans. So this is my show and I'm going to do it. <laughs> But, you know, the popular thing to say in most people who analyze the story is it's four episodes of brilliance and then the last three are utter crap. You know, oh, and I on. disagree what? with it. Who I... that? You're dumb. <laughs> Obviously nobody on this podcast. Uh, right. It, it is utter crap. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, they changed directors. You know, it's, it's Richard Martin directing the, the last couple because he was sort of like studying under Christopher Berry and there's some of that going on and, and he's definitely not as skilled a director, but I still hold up that scene in episode six with them jumping over the chasm as so dark and dramatic and it's, it's a powerful gripping scene of this guy who's terrified that's being pushed into this thing that he doesn't want to do and what happened. I love that scene. I think that that's you know, really well done and, and, it, and it sort of like really ups the danger level of, of what they're doing. Yeah, there are things to criticize about it and, and yeah, there are some things that don't work. But overall, the story is good. The idea is great. And I think that the acting and, 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 and the writing is pretty good throughout. So, yeah, I think the Daleks is, is another really great story. It's also the doctor deliberately sabotaging mm. and lying. Mm -hmm. Because he wants to go check things out. And, oh, my gosh, I couldn't believe he did that when that happened. I was like, oh, oh, are you kidding me? Yeah, but I remember, he's thinking there's nothing really bad here, right? He thinks he's just going to pop down, explore the city, and then they'll come back and he'll, he'll be like, oh, I fixed the TARDIS. He'll just put the thing mm -hmm. back that he took out. Everything will be fine. I just now realized, because, you know, I've only seen, like, this season one, mm -hmm. and then Doctors 9 and 10, a little bit of 11, I think one episode of 12. I did see the special with the War Doctor, because, wow, that was good. But now it occurs to me. Because this, this encounter, of course, is the first encounter with the Daleks. This is before the Time War. Is this the, what really just sparked their intense Dalek hatred of the Doctor? Like, before they encounter the rest of the Time Lords, is this the thing that sticks in the Dalek memory banks? I don't think you want us to tell you uh, right, no, yeah, Am I going to find out? <laughs> it's never definitively said. 
Because it just hit me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It, it, it's it's the, there's the answer to that question is complicated, and I I without you seeing other stuff, I can't really I can't really answer it. Okay, because I mean, it makes me wonder. Like, the time lords, do they all regenerate? Is it just this doctor? How do they know it's still this doctor? I'm. I have all these questions that just popped into my head in these last ten seconds. Yeah, some of these questions will be answered very soon. Other questions will be answered, <laughs> or some of them never get answered. So that's all I can say right now. Or never also, get answered just... get conclusively, I should say. The cool idea that the Daleks were the peaceful ones and the philosophers. And the Thals were, weren't they the aggressive ones? And they attacked. And I want, I still wish I knew like what really, what, what went down on this planet. We will get more on that. That I can, I can tell you. Yeah, but, all, but let's put it this way. Uh, the, the foul historian, they just need to go get a better historian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, also things kind of get retconned in later episodes because in, during Classic Who, they weren't going back and referencing things that had been written in the Hartnell era. So honestly, you can probably kind of pick your own canon because different episodes will give you different things. So like whatever you kind of decide from what you piece together, I think is anything goes quite honestly well and i think it is possible to wreck i i mean i know what you're talking about i mean you and eric and i all know what we're talking about but (laughs) i think it is possible to reconcile the genesis account with with what happens in the daleks it's just it's not as straight it's just not straightforward but i think it is possible to reconcile it man i can't wait to find out more about the daleks i can't (laughs) i'm so excited because they really are my favorite doctor who villain i have run across yeah, no, and I mean, that's the thing. I mean, they, they took off in Britain. I mean, this is what started, like, you know, licensed products with Doctor Who. Like, the BBC was never good about licensing, but they knew what they had with the Daleks, and they started doing, like, Dalek lunchboxes, Dalek toys, Dalek costumes, you know, like, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, like, the Daleks really took off, and so they knew what they had with that, and so they made sure that they brought them back. So, yes, you will be seeing Daleks again, like, soon. <laughs> that's all I'll, that's all i'll say soon okay <laughs> but yeah um i don't know any any other thoughts about about the doll i mean juliet you gotta talk about dione for a minute <laughs> go come on she is like the best okay I, I didn't think i liked her at first in fact i called her chica in my notes i said she had the best resting bitch face i'd ever seen Be- and for some reason that stuck with me just the looks that she gave susan and barbara like that get away from my man look and i could tell that this woman as i learned that you know they were pacifists now and so on like that that woman was not a pacifist (laughs) she did not want to be a pacifist and she would she would have been much better in charge of leading this whole charge the daleks would have not been a threat long before the doctor ever showed up on scaro because wow she would have just taken care of business i just don't know what it was about dione but over that entire arc by the end of it i was team dione all the way (laughs) And I couldn't figure out why. I love this because that's the thing. Like Eric said, like most people like don't even talk about Dione. They kind of figure as sort of like a non-character in the story. And I love the fact that you just glommed on to Dione. I want to write fiction about the rise of warlord Dione. (laughs) I love it. I don't read it. Thank you. I just she for some reason as a side character who had all of three. Okay, I think I know what I think I remember what it was that got me. She, the first comment was was when she uh, was talking about they gave it to Susan instead of a or in, 
Susan, right? They gave they gave something to Susan. Yeah, the anti radiation drugs. Yeah. yeah, gloves. She made a snide yeah. comment. <laughs> and then, then there was something else. The two men were talking, and they made a comment about Dione, and one of and it was very it was very just like you know acknowledging that she is very biting and probably the one who wears the pants, <laughs> even if they do have holes all up the sides. <laughs> <laughs> also, dear God, that outfit. She would look much better in the men's outfits than the men looked in their outfits. I don't know about but, that. But, <laughs> but yeah. man, I just don't know. She just stood out to me as a character. And the more I have thought about her and have run into other characters throughout this whole first season, it's Dione who is most definitely my favorite uh, of our side characters mm. that we have run into. And I don't know that actress, man. She just gave her personality that full that face, and it, maybe it's because I have been accused of having that face myself <laughs> that I just related to her immediately. I don't know. I just love her so much. I think that's great, and I think that that's great that you glommed onto a character that you know, and 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 brought out stuff that you know I I never really paid much attention to, and I think that that's good that you know, and again, it's it, it I think it speaks to the quality of actors they were getting into the show that even when they had a smaller part, that they're just doing whatever they are. And she's like, okay, I'm the jealous girlfriend. All right, I got you know, like I'm gonna be the jealous girlfriend, right? And she owns that part. <laughs> And she was so much more than just the jealous girlfriend. Oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyone else have anything to say about the Daleks? <laughs> I just love the design work on, I mean, on the show entirely. But I mean, I I really like the whole like mid-century retro-futuristic aesthetic. Mm. Is, you know, I grew up watching those kind of movies. So I just. I love it. And I think Doctor Who has some of the best examples of that. Like the original TARDIS like interior is just like beautiful and brilliant. And I would like out of all the TARDISes, like I want to live in that one, but just the Dalek city and just like, it's just beautiful. I mean, like people today, they're like, Oh, it's so clearly they're using miniatures and models and everything's so cheap. But I mean, aside from, you know, what the materials they're working with, I mean, just the designs are just beautiful. I love it. Like I'm willing to suspend my disbelief and go, okay, they're working with a low budget on a, you know, tight schedule. Like what they did with what they had is so beautiful. And I think the Daleks is like a really, uh, was, you know, a, one of their best um, futuristic designs for any of their episodes in the early, early ones. And I just, yeah, I just, I really love it. The arched doorways. The thing I think about a lot, Miranda, watching these now, especially with my wife being as crafty as she is, is the amount of effort and work they're putting into those miniatures and and even yeah. the sets. You know, like these are things people are making by hand, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. This is this yeah, is a exactly. lot of love of of, yeah. of you know the craft, you know, as that they're making this. Yeah. yeah, it's obviously a model, sure, but look how detailed that city is. Exactly. I think people today with you know CGI everything just don't. I think they take for granted just how much like work and care and skill has to go into like physically making models of cities and ships and all this stuff. And they just they always did a beautiful job on Classic Who. Mm-hmm. There's also that beautiful shot, and, and Christopher Barry really is a fantastic director, where they do the forced perspective of the doctor looking at the city, 
and you've got them in the same frame where you know the city's you know in the in the background and the doctor's looking with those with those awesome glasses that he has that are binoculars mm-hmm. also <laughs> but uh you know and again like it's really well shot and that gives you a much better sense of this as this is something in the distance it's the shots where they're just panning around the city or whatever you can tell it's a model but that's fine because it's like that's i mean it's so elaborate it's so well done and that mist and the fog they have sort of yes. around and everything it's very it's very atmospheric i love that yeah. it's so pretty the other shot and the other thing that I think was was well done as far as how they made it was um, we talked about the bit where Barbara, you know, the, that sort of cliffhanger where Barbara's being menaced. But before that, Barbara's running from something. She doesn't know what she's running from, but she's just trying to get away. They do these nice shots where the camera is low and we're looking up mm-hmm. at Barbara and it's kind of like tilted. And yeah. the forced perspective, and I don't know if this was deliberate, the forced perspective on the hallways, because obviously they wanted the hallways to look a lot longer than they actually had room in the studio, so they're painting a forced perspective of the hallway. And it doesn't, it doesn't match up in that first episode. Like, it looks like it goes off at a, at a funny angle up. I'm wondering sometimes if that was deliberate, because in later episodes it works. So they either mm-hmm. redid it, or that was a deliberate thing to show, like, how sort of off-kilter Barbara was by having the set not quite work in a literal way right like that it looks like things are going kind of askew and even having the forced perspective kind of go askew and i think that that might have been a deliberate choice and and i think that 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 whole bit is great because it's sort of like the set is mirroring barbara's own like psychological state oh no i think it was very deliberate based on how that episode ended Mm. i think that it, it felt it was totally straight out of any sort of horror movie right there and it was it was effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole sequence has a wonderfully creepy, disorienting vibe. That's just like yeah, and that yeah, that was obviously like one of the most, if not the most iconic cliffhanger in any <laughs> Doctor Who story. So yeah, they they did so well. All right. Well, we've been talking about season. Oh wow! I just looked at the time. We were talking longer <laughs> than I thought we were. Okay. I was like, oh yeah, an hour ninety minutes. We'll, we'll get this, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, we obviously all have strong opinions about season one of Doctor Who, and, and like Eric was saying before, I think it was Eric, and maybe other people mentioned it too. I don't dislike any of these stories. No, I think that they're all various levels of good. Maybe moments, or maybe half of episodes, but. You know, nothing particularly was awful or that I would be like, nope, never watching that again. Right. Yeah, because I mean, like, I, you know, Eric was mentioning Keys of Marinus's week for him. I feel like the censor rights is one that they went for too many ideas and maybe that was the problem um, with it, that they didn't get to serve all of those ideas. Um, but they still, I still admire that one for how highbrow they were trying to go and how many concepts that they were trying to go for in that. And I think Peter, it's just a shame Peter Newman suffered from writer's block after that, because I would be interested in. Is he the one who died and fell downstairs? Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He had writer's block for years and then he died. Yeah. He fell down the stairs and died. Wow. Uh, One of the things about the sensorites that I think deserves note is that it actually presents a, a fairly realistic society you know you've got different kinds of you know different stations of of authority you've got different classes in the planet and then you've also got issues of xenophobia and racism that 
are handled completely differently from the Daleks, which is about similar themes. I really think the sensor rights is a better story than we give it credit for. But then I went and picked Marco Polo. So <laughs> well, and Eric, Eric, I think Keys of Marinus is, is amazing because it depicts different locations on a planet all with their own, like, you know, ways of being and, and different, you know, yeah. cultures and whatnot. So, which isn't generally no, done in no. a lot of sci-fi where, like, one location is, oh, the whole planet is like this. Yeah, I love the world. Although, I, actually, I have a point to make about that. In episode one of Keys of Marinus, they are, I think it's in episode one, could be in one of the later ones. They actually have a map. Mm. And the map, from what I could tell, because I stopped it and looked, only depicts what is basically a big island. Mm. <laughs> so Marinus is apparently just a giant island mm. with different cities on it. So we have brains with eye stalks in one corner of the island. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. So... There you go. Okay, well, fun fact. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think we gotta we gotta move on, and obviously we'll do one of these again for season two and so on. But yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. I'm really glad to have you uh, two with us this time, Eric and Miranda, because it was great having this sort of discussion. Because Juliet and I, we kind of know where each how each other feels about these stories, and then kind of like have like okay. Let's have some more points of view and, and and get the discussion sort of broadened out. So thank you for for being on the show. It's fun to hear you guys talk about it. It's fun talking about it with other people who love it as much as I do. Yeah, I've had a blast talking about this with you guys. Is it weird that, you know, you guys can't talk about like anything else that happens in later classic Who seasons because I have literally never seen them and want to be surprised? Well, I always end up talking about the first season and how great it is anyway, so it probably <laughs> it would have been the same reason. <laughs> okay, good. Because I was like, I realize that I am well outside the limit of spoiler alerts, so. <laughs> I don't mind doing it. What I envy you is seeing it all for the first time. Oh, it's so much uh, fun. Yeah. Well, you wait and see how fun it is. <laughs> wait, wait, is that like a threat? Or a, a, a <laughs> no, 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 excitement? sorry. May you live <laughs> in interesting times, Julia. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to sound like a brain of Wolfgang. Um, Kill her. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean that in earnest. There's a lot of interesting twists and turns ahead. So um, I, I, I really envy you. Like I came to Doctor Who, even New Who, really late after like it only up in like 2012, 2013 was when I finally stepped into it. So I, I dig this classic Who. I don't know why I love it so much, but it's really enjoyable. I'm enjoying talking with somebody who's seen it all for the first time. So, you know, it works <laughs> for me. But yeah, so Eric, say goodbye to the audience. And if there's anything you want to plug, uh, feel free. No, nothing to plug other than pray for me as I get through the next 5,000 zillion acres of soybeans. And goodbye. Thanks for having me. All right. It's definitely good having you on, Eric. All right. So, Miranda, say goodbye. And if you have anything to plug, you can mention that now, too. I have nothing to plug except, you know, donate to your local community theater organizations to their because they're struggling. And, you know, every little bit helps them get by through the, the pandemic times. And, yeah, just thanks for having me on. and. Goodbye. It was great having you on, and Miranda. And yeah, Juliet, do you have anything that you wanted to give a shout out to? Heck, not a single thing except start watching season two with us as we go through it because, oh my gosh, it's going to be so much fun. All right. Yeah, no, that's good. And yeah, I don't have anything really to shout out about either. 
But yeah, join us back next time because now we're going to go a little bit of a sidestep. We're not going straight into season two because <gasps> we're going to do some stories that were written for season one, but were never produced. So join us back next time for Farewell, Great Macedon. Oh, dear. Oh. So yeah, this is Nathan. This is Juliet. And we'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Time Streams, a subsidiary of the 42Cast podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at everything at 42cast.com. Beginning music is Vortex, followed by Pulse Rock, both by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License. Ending music is Voltaic, also by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License.